0: Would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. Pray with me for just a moment as you find that text. Our Father, we come now to the best part of the day where we open your word. And if we would hear from God, if we would hear from heaven, we have but to open our Bibles and read it aloud. And we thus hear God speak. And we thank you for that. And as we hear your word now, and then hear the explanation of your word, I pray that you would bolster our hearts, that you would thrill our hearts with the gospel of Christ that you would make us to be even more in awe of our Savior, and more in awe of your plan of salvation, more in awe of your gracious kindness and mercy to us. Lord, let these truths nail themselves deeply into our very souls so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Isaiah fifty-two, thirteen. out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. We've spent extensive time shepherding our hearts in the Word of God, studying, first of all, what the church is to be about. We started this all the way last November, looking at our gift to Jesus. And that led us in a a very intentional direction, and that is to build a theology of biblical giving and all of this in preparation for the three-year journey that we've called joyful generosity responding to God's grace as we raise funds for a new facility and we examine basically every passage in scripture every major passage at least on giving we established what I think was in a substantial theology of why we give and really at this point if you heard all seven of those messages and and you choose not to give anything to the to the work of the Lord then that's on you because you have been given the foundation but today we're calling celebration Sunday and at the close of the service we'll sing a hymn together while we gather everyone and by the way moms if you've got babies in the nursery we're going to get everyone we're going to empty the building everyone will be in here we'll sing a hymn we'll gather Everyone together will announce what you have chosen to give, what you've chosen to commit toward a new facility, and Lord willing, in the near future, that time will have a definite different feel to it. But we felt it was important first that we honor Christ and we worship the Lord. So you might be wondering, on Celebration Sunday, why are you preaching on the Suffering Saviour? Well, very simply because only a biblical understanding of the suffering Savior gives you anything to celebrate. That is the basis of our celebration. Without the suffering Savior, our sins remain our debt to pay. Without the suffering Savior, our access to God is forever denied. Without the suffering Savior, the fires of hell will burn hotter and hotter, awaiting for you to arrive. Without the suffering Savior, heaven is now just an unreal dream. And without the suffering Savior, death looms as a very real nightmare. And so we have focused on the joyful generosity part. Today we focus on the responding to God's grace part, remembering his grace. And so in these coming weeks, we'll work our way toward Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday using Isaiah 53 and the last part of 52 that we just read. After Resurrection Sunday, we'll look forward to settling back into the Gospel of John where we left off last November. Now, we went through Isaiah 53 almost exactly a year ago, but I want to revisit it with us together for several reasons. First of all, we went through it on Sunday nights for just a few weeks, and so many of you weren't there for that, and this will be a first time through for you. Another reason, though, it's so rich in the knowledge of Christ, it's so rich in our understanding of the theology of salvation, the theology of the cross, that preaching Christ and preaching the cross is always a good idea. And this is just a a paramount text for us to do that. But really what I wanted to do is just add some fresh study and some fresh insights to this text and walk through it. And it's impacted my own heart, and I hope that it impacts yours as well. That has been my prayer. So in in the cold of the night and in the chill of hardship and pain and in the iciness that the world gives to us, Which were disturbed and disrupted and distressed, Isaiah 53 is like coming to a roaring campfire. And we thaw the chill and the cold and the iciness. So we come in from out of the cold and we warm our souls now around this amazing text. It's a dear and precious, a timeless, a priceless passage about our suffering Savior. Now, the last time we walked through Isaiah 53, we went verse by verse, step by step. That is our usual practice. This time we're going to do it differently. I'm going to organize the text topically and we're going to consider several different aspects of the suffering Savior and we will culminate on Resurrection Sunday, our, our, our really greatest Sunday of the year. So today what I want to consider is the aspect of atonement. Atonement. Specifically, I'd like to feature several highlights that Isaiah gives us about the atonement. We'll get to those in the text in just a minute. But first, to get our thinking going, we need to just lay some groundwork. And so I just want to pose a few questions for you, and we'll answer them to help our minds get to the atonement. First of all, probably the question we need to answer first is, what is the atonement? What does that mean? Well, it's the means by which sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God. It's very simple. It's the means by which sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God. This involves satisfying the wrath of God. This involves expending and extinguishing all of the righteous, righteous punishment of sin onto a sacrificial substitute, that the wrath of God has to be finished, it has to be extinguished. It involves ridding the sinner of all responsibility of guilt and accountability for sin while never once violating God's perfect justice, His holiness, His righteousness, never once excusing sin. God cannot just be Santa Claus and say, I'll just move you from the naughty list to the good list. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be the justice of God being satisfied. So the atonement is the means by which sinful mankind is reconciled to a holy God. Another question we could ask is, who is the focus of the atonement? Who is the focus of the atonement? You have two choices, you or Christ. Which one do you think we're going to talk about? Christ. Christ is the focus of the atonement. Without Christ, wrath is poured on you. Without Christ, the guilt and the responsibility for sin will stay with you for all of eternity. The wrath of God on you forever. You will never be rid of your guilt. So any discussion of atonement that doesn't major on Jesus Christ is hollow and pointless and useless. Now, there are several schools of thought, mostly Jewish, that believe that the suffering servant here of Isaiah 53 speaks of Israel. Others say that it speaks of Isaiah himself, the prophet. Well, this can't be speaking of Israel since the suffering servant is bearing the sins of Israel. That can't be. And it can't be Isaiah since he's unqualified to bear the sins of Israel. He's not qualified to do so he's a man he's a mere man so we stay with the well-proven and the long-standing view that this is a prophetic vision of the person of Jesus Christ given to Isaiah by the way 700 years before the birth of Christ so who is the focus of the atonement it is Christ himself so one more question just to kind of get our minds thinking in the right direction why is the atonement important why is this so important isn't that just a, a dusty theological word that we don't need? Well, very simply, the doctrine of the atonement is absolutely the foundation of the gospel of Christ. It's what everything else is built on. It's the solid bedrock on which every other aspect of salvation from sin is constructed. One little mistake, one mistake in the doctrine of the atonement It leads inevitably to errors throughout our entire understanding of salvation. One mistake leads to a lower view of God because now God needs the help of men to accomplish salvation, to gather his saints together. One little mistake leads to an elevated view of mankind because now we are inherently capable of choosing God, and that's wrong. One little mistake leads to a lower view of Scripture, which now... Clearly teaches scriptural concepts such as election, predestination, regeneration, and you have to explain all those away now if you make a mistake in atonement. And one little mistake in atonement leads to a lowered view of the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is at the beck and call of mankind, since a mistake in atonement will lead to the view that the Holy Spirit regenerates those who have faith. Sounds good, but it's wrong. Faith itself is made possible by the Holy Spirit. So you have to get the atonement right. Now, we've laid that kind of foundation. Let's observe five of Isaiah's highlights concerning the atonement. The first one we'll just call the picture of atonement. The picture of atonement, and this is found in chapter 52, verse 15. The picture of atonement, verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Your Bible might have a footnote that says, or startle many nations. That is an old view, and current scholarship has proven that to be wrong. It is sprinkle. So you can mark that little footnote out. This is a reference to sacrifice. This is a reference to the sprinkling of blood on the atonement cover, the mercy seat in heaven's holy of holies, Leviticus sixteen fifteen: the The blood of the sin offering is to be sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant In the Holy of Holies, the throne of God on earth, in heaven's nine Hebrews nine, verse twelve rather, confirms that Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, and his blood, unlike the temporary sacrifices of sheep and goats and bulls, his blood secures redemption that's not just annual, like on the Day of Atonement, but it's eternal redemption. Hebrews nine twelve, quote He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Every year, the high priest of Israel would have to enter into the holy of holies, the one on earth. Jesus entered one time into the holy of holies in heaven. And so when Christ ascended into heaven after his death and resurrection, he entered heaven's holy of holies and he secured a forever redemption in his own blood. Now what's the what is the significance of sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat? On the on earth, the mercy seat is the throne of God. What is the the significance of sprinkling blood? It's very simple. The blood is sprinkled to prove that death has occurred. The blood is sprinkled to prove that a sacrifice has been made. And Jesus Christ fulfills a priestly function, the the work of cleansing from sin by means of the sprinkled shed blood of sacrifice. And so, as it were, Christ entered into heaven and sprinkled his own blood. You also notice, he shall sprinkle many nations. There's an emphasis on the nations. Christ is the Savior of Israel. Israel is the conduit of salvation through Christ to all who are represented by the nations. When the roll call of the redeemed is called out in heaven to the glory of God, we will see people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. In fact, the the word for every tribe, every family rather, it, it means that every single family on earth, every single clan, so to speak, will be represented in heaven. Every single one. Now, this mention of the nations brings up a question. For whom did Christ die? In other words, who is the atonement for? Who is this for? Did Christ die for all of humanity or only for those who would ultimately be saved? Well, I think this is as good an opportunity as any to remind ourselves about the belief system called Arminianism. And this would assert that Christ died to pay for the sins of every single human being who has ever lived. And as such, every human being now is responsible to exert his own will to receive that atonement. Arminianism relies heavily on the human will, on the human decision to effect salvation, that you who have thought so sinfully and so idiotically about everything in life is now capable of making the right decision about the only thing that's actually important. Now this intersects with the atonement because salvation is dependent on according to this view on human decision. So what does that mean? That means that Christ died for everyone in general and no one in particular. That Christ died for all who would hopefully come to faith in him. But we would hold very strongly to what is often called limited atonement. This is the L in the famous Calvinist TULIP acronym. But more helpfully, we would call it definite atonement or particular redemption. To believe that Christ died for all is to necessarily now place the burden of responsibility to figure out salvation on you. Do you honestly think you were thinking clearly when you needed Christ? I wasn't. I don't think you were either. That view says, as one preacher proclaimed, quote, This love of God is immeasurable but can be entirely rejected God will not force himself upon any man against his will but if you really want the love of God you must take it. You know what Charles Spurgeon said? He quoted from the Gospel of Luke where Jesus said that many shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south into the kingdom and he preached a whole sermon on the word shall. You say you shall not come to Christ? God says you shall. You say are you going to force me to be a Christian? And God says, yes, I shall. And God says, I knew that you would call upon me because I decided it. That is the shall of God. We don't say God's love is immeasurable and hopefully you'll figure that out. As a matter of fact, the apostle Peter uses the picture of sprinkling for atonement the picture we have here in Isaiah, and at the same time confirms who initiated the atonement. He says in First Peter 1, he, he opens his book, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's important. The elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Did you see he just gave the order of salvation? What happens first? The elect, according to the foreknowledge of the Father. The foreknowledge of the Father is not that just God knew who would choose him. That's passive. As one of my heroes of the faith said, that's like throwing a dart at a wall and going and drawing a circle around it and saying, I made a bullseye. That makes no sense. This is active knowledge. This is the elect. It's a Greek word that means the chosen ones. There's nothing passive about that. That's first. Second, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit intervenes in the soul of the elect, called by Jesus Christ, being born again, called by the Apostle Paul, being regenerated. And when did you ask for that? When did you say, Holy Spirit, come convince me of Christ? You never did that. Third... For obedience to Jesus Christ. So you have election, the calling of the Spirit, the, the, the regeneration, the rebirth of the Spirit. Then, third, you have obedience to Christ. This is the act of believing the gospel. Of course, we say you must believe. Of course, we say you must have faith. But you didn't start it. You didn't start it. And then, fourth, for the sprinkling with his blood that the atonement is now graciously fully applied to you after election after the calling of the spirit after regeneration after you have believed and been obedient and now your sins are atoned for we've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ by the will and the choice of God in his gracious kindness the sprinkling proves that the sacrifice has been made that's the picture of the atonement Isaiah gives another highlight concerning the atonement we would just call the obedience of atonement. The obedience of atonement. The opening line of this beautiful section in chapter 52, verse 13, declares boldly from the mouth of God the Father concerning his son, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Behold is a a word in Hebrew that just means listen up. I mean what I'm about to say. And he shall act wisely. It means to have success. It means to do something skillfully. It means to do exactly the right thing at the right time in the right moment. It could also mean that he will prosper, that all that he does will be effective. Jesus affirmed this himself. He prayed to the Father in John 17 I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Everything was done. Every sermon every healing every demon that was cast out every person who came to faith every word every act of the Lord Jesus Christ exactly according to the plan and precisely in the will of his father and according to his father's will Luke 9 51 when the days drew near for him to be taken up he set his face to go to Jerusalem nobody dragged him there he walked to Jerusalem to die he did it of his own will Completely obedient to the plan of his father. Look at chapter 53, verse 4. The first half. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he is born. This is a mark of emphasis. It means truly, indeed, verily. So, what has Christ truly, indeed, verily, surely done? He is born. It means to lift something up. It means to carry it. And so he has lifted up. He's carried our griefs, first of all. Now, this is a broad translation, most often used in his 24 times in the Old Testament to speak of disease, sickness, or illness. It is a mistake, though, to take the charismatic interpretation that one of the reasons Jesus died on the cross was so that we could be healed of all of our diseases at any time. That is a low view of the cross. That is a low view of Christ. That is a high view of self. The text is speaking of infinitely higher things, atonement from sin. But just because you can't interpret this to mean that you can claim healing at any time you want based on Christ's work... It doesn't mean that physical infirmity is off the table for discussion. The primary problem in view with the Hebrew words griefs, which means sickness and illness, and then sorrows, which just speaks of pains, the primary problem in view here is not the judicial legal position of the sinner before God, the primary problem of view here is simply the real life consequences of sin that we experience because of that judicial position before God. That we are considered a sinner, but these words speak of all the terrible things that happen because of sin. God told Adam, If you break my law, you will die. That is the judicial position. What happened to Adam? He died. Those are the consequences. And so these words, the griefs and the sorrows, this, these words encapsulate all that mar our human existence because of sin, that we do have diseases, we do age, we do have debilitating conditions, we do have pains, we do have sorrows. So the question is, is in the midst of a passage that's so high and so lofty, why would Isaiah be speaking of something so lesser such as just physical illness versus the larger issue of, of sin? Well, because the text here is telling us that Jesus isn't just pronouncing you innocent of sin by virtue of his substitution. He's also pronouncing that you will be saved from the results, from the consequences, from the outcome of sin. That all that sin causes, you'll be rescued from those things. Salvation from sin isn't just a judicial proclamation of a change in status, but it's your change in destiny. It's the change in what's going to happen to you. Listen, the results of sin and the fact of being in sin, they're joined at the hip. To solve one, you must solve the other. And the atonement and the healing of all the consequences of sin must go hand in hand. I love Matthew 8 because it's so beautiful to see the power of Christ. And there's story after story Of Jesus literally cleansing entire crowds of demons, of diseases, of infirmities of all kinds. Matthew 8 tells us the reason. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's a paraphrase of the verse we just read. So what was Jesus doing? He's saying, let me show you what a kingdom devoid of sin can look like let me show you what the earth will be like when I am king. He's given the preview of what a sin-free life and a sin-free world will be, will be like. You don't deal with disease unless you deal with sin. And so he came to deal with sin because all of the consequences, including disease, including infirmity, including death, will be taken care of. And Christ was obedient to the Father. This was the predetermined plan of God the Father which Christ faithfully carried out. Listen to Ephesians 3:11 that this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And think about this, if you just did a survey of the gospels, think about all the opportunities humanly speaking that Jesus had to get out of this. At his temptation, Matthew 4, he was given the opportunity to rule the world without going to the cross. As his popularity grew and people wanted to make him king, he was given the opportunity to rule the world without going to the cross. At his arrest, he could have called legions of angels and ruled the world without going to the cross. At his trial, he could have proclaimed his innocence, but he was silent. He didn't say anything because he is truth and therefore must speak truth. And if he would speak, he would have to say, I'm innocent. But at every turn, at every opportunity, He set his face to the cross and he would not relent in his obedience to the Father. And he did that for our sake that we might be converted to Christ according to the Father's will and the Father's good plan. Now certainly a person's will is active in conversion. Otherwise Jesus wouldn't have preached believe, believe, believe. Otherwise the Gospel of John wouldn't tell us to believe 125 times. But where did belief originate? Where did it come from? John six forty four. Jesus told us, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And it puts human decision as the activator of divine mercy instead of divine sovereignty as the activator of human decision. And so, yes, we obey the gospel, but it's first because Christ obeyed his Father. That came first you couldn't decide to be born again any more than you could decide to be born the first time. You you couldn't do that. What what did you do? Call down from some ethereal non-existence to mom and dad and say, hey, why don't you go out on a date night because I want to get here. That's ridiculous. We are here because of the choice of God and the choice of God alone. Listen, you must believe But the belief that you have, if you are in Christ, the belief that you had at the moment when your eyes were open, that was not your idea. That wasn't your idea. He was obedient. There's another highlight. We'll call it the fullness of the atonement. The fullness of the atonement. How much of your sin did Jesus take care of? Verse 5 of chapter 53 but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed this is crucifixion language with 100% accuracy of a true prophet of God this is by the way before crucifixion was invented Christ was pierced as the Romans drove nails into his wrists and feet Christ was pierced when his side was speared this verse starts with a conjunction, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Meaning we, that is Israel, thought he was stricken by God for his own sins at the end of verse 4. But actually, this is the great realization of the gospel. Oh, he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. It was for me. And it couldn't be a 50% price paid. He, he couldn't pay 90%. He couldn't pay 99%. It had to be 100% payment because James 2.10 says that if you have broken one of God's laws, you are guilty of all. It had to be a total forgiveness. Every single sin had to be placed furiously and frightfully under the person of Christ. And unto him was placed eternity after eternity of hell and torment. This was poured onto him until the wrath of God against your sin is fully spent. All the arrows of the judgment of God have been spent and they've been shot. The magazine in the clip of the judgment of God is emptied on Christ. And then and only then did Jesus say those beautiful words that are so important to us. It is what? Finished. But God didn't just empty the wrath His wrath on Christ so that we could now have a neutral relationship with God. This wasn't like you appeared before a judge and the judge pronounced you innocent and said, have a good day, I'll never see you again. The payment of Christ didn't just square the accounts between you and God. It reconciled you to God such that all that He has is now yours. That in Christ you have, according to 1 Peter 1, 4 an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. As Elvina Hall's hymn titled, Jesus Paid It All. He didn't pay most. He paid it all. Think about all the sins that you have committed just today, all the ones in the last week, all the ones in your last year, in your lifetime. It's overwhelming. You know what the Bible says that those sins contain? they're listed in? They're listed in books. In books. But your book is empty before Christ. There is no list. That's full atonement. So another highlight of Isaiah concerning the atonement, we'll call it the pathway of atonement. The pathway of atonement. In verse 6, we see a clear contrast between unholy humanity and the holy savior all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned everyone to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all now verse four said he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows that the burden of sin is on him now verse six emphasizes who put it on him the Lord did. God the Father placed on God the Son the iniquity of us all. This is an important word theologically for you. Iniquity. The usual translation of a Hebrew word we, we, we see in English as iniquity, but it has at as as its root an important concept. It means something that is twisted, that's warped, that's bent. It used to be good. Now it's bad. It used to work. Now it doesn't work. It used to be functional. Now it's dysfunctional. In other words, we took the holy intentions of God and made them unholy. We took the tongue, which is meant to bless, and with it we curse. We took hands meant to create, and with them we kill. We took feet meant to walk in righteousness, and with them we walk in the path of sinners. We took the sexuality that God meant to bless marriage, and with it we please ourselves. We took the eyes meant to look on the holy things of God, and instead... We look at the lustful impurities of our own desires and we took the ears meant to take in eternal, glorious wisdom and instead we listen to the lies of worldliness and seduction and greed and deception. We've taken what is good and twisted it. That's what iniquity is. But why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just put Jesus, or frankly any person for that matter, through some sort of punitive penance, some sort of psychological torture for a while, or some sort of invisible spiritual torment until sin was atoned for? Well, Jesus had to die because this was the standard that God originally set out to Adam, that if Adam sinned, he was impure, he was unholy, he was defiled, he was wrecked, he was done And the only way to purge evil is to get rid of it, to kill it. You cannot reform sin. It has to be killed because the wages of sin is death. Listen, let me put it this way. God created mankind as a physical, spiritual being to enjoy his goodness, enjoy his creation, enjoy his presence forever. That was God's original purpose for man, and that continues. And so in rejecting the goodness of God, rejecting his, his creation and his goodness in creation, rejecting the delight of his presence, because we love our sin, just retribution for sin includes the physical and spiritual torment of the whole person. Every human being that has ever been born still exists is still conscious, is still cognizant, is still aware. Human beings never go out of existence because we're made in the image of God who is eternal. And so rebellious mankind won't just be snuffed out. We're immortal. We won't get to just have some sort of floating, amorphous existence after death. Revelation 20 says that God will resurrect all the unsaved dead into bodies with which they will experience The torment of God for all time. In a place where the worms that eat dead bodies never die because the body won't die. And where the flames of the torment of hell are never extinguished. And someone might ask, why is God so harsh? Better question, why is God so holy? Why is he so holy? Can you take back a lie? By saying, I'm sorry, did that actually take back a lie? No, you've already violated the holiness of God. It's there, you can't undo it. It will go on, that lie will go on into eternity. Therefore, the punishment must go on into eternity. Can you take back wicked sexual immorality? There's nothing you can do to undo it. You can't take it back. Can you take back a murder? You've taken a life and that person will be murdered for all eternity, you can't unmurder them. And so what have you earned? You've earned physical and spiritual torment because you can never take back a sin. Your body will only know the pain and the anguish of agony. Your only experience of God will be his furious wrath. And you'll only experience, your only experience of creation will be the place he creates to torment you. So if you can't ever undo sin, if you can't pay back sin who's going to well it has to be christ jesus experienced the physical torment he was pierced for our transgressions and he experienced the spiritual retribution of god he was crushed by the wrath of god that was the only pathway that is the only pathway And why would we ever think that we would, in our iniquity, our twisting of everything good, think for a moment that we could somehow come to the logical conclusion that we need to come to God? How is it that you have twisted everything in your life from the time you were able to consciously sin, and all of a sudden you have a moment of clarity where you logically, on your own, with no help whatsoever, decide that I need redemption? Logically, that doesn't make sense. If you've twisted everything, then you'll never come to that conclusion. You'll never believe that. Christ died for those whom God had already chosen. It is a particular redemption. Now, you don't have to understand that to come to faith in Christ. You don't have to. You don't have to believe that to be saved, but you're saved despite your error. Great 19th century preacher, one of my heroes of the faith, Charles Spurgeon, he said it this way. This is cute how he says this. He says, I have known some that at first conversion... Have not been very clear in the gospel. They could not spell the word grace. They began with a G, but very soon went on with an F until it spelt free will but after they have learned their weaknesses after they have fallen into serious fault and God has restored them or after they have passed through deep depression of mind they have sung a new song in the school of repentance they have learned to spell they begin to write the word free but they went on from free not to will but to grace and there it stood in capitals free grace Isaiah highlights this for us the only pathway to the atonement is Christ picture of the atonement obedience fullness pathway of the atonement one more highlight we'll call this the commitment of the atonement the commitment of the atonement god promised abraham to create from him a great nation one that would enjoy god's favor forever and of course from this nation israel would spring forth the gospel from whom all the nations us included would hear the truth of christ But in verse 8, there's a really poignant, I think very emotional moment concerning the Lord's love for His people Israel and keeping His promise to Abraham because God will only bless a holy, forgiven, righteous people so sin has to be dealt with so that He can bless them. Chapter 53, verse 8 says that Christ was, quote, stricken for the transgression of my people, For His people, Messiah will be the offering. He will pay what Israel owes. He will pay the sin debt. He will render what is due to the Lord such that a remnant will be saved. And here's what happens. This is all so that someday, as Ezekiel 37 says, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people." Chapter 53, verse 10 says of Christ, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, literally, when his life makes an offering, Christ didn't come to just do penance on our behalf. He came to die so that we could live. By the way, this is the paradox that we face every single time we celebrate the Lord's table together, communion, because we're remembering the death of Christ. And so we celebrate and we mourn all at the same time. I mean, wasn't there another way? Couldn't God simply use his vast, endless power to decimate sin in some other fashion? Was the substitutionary death of Christ the only possible way of salvation? Well, Hebrews 2 verse 10 says that in order to bring many sons to glory, the founder of salvation must suffer any other sacrifice won't do. Hebrews 10 verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Something had to be done to present you as perfected before God. And so Jesus committed himself to provide atonement, to make reparations for you. You wrecked the record of your life. Christ cleaned up your record. You ran like Jonah did. Christ paid your price when you ran And you committed capital crimes against God, but Christ paid all the penalty. Verse 11 says, He shall bear their iniquities. Verse 4, we saw that He has borne our griefs, but the word for bear their iniquities is different than verse 4, borne our griefs, rather. Verse 4 speaks, I said, of carrying something, lifting something. But here in verse 11, this word adds a different nuance. It's being loaded to capacity with something in totality that christ take your sin your shame your guilt every single part of you that is unholy before god and he unloads it from you and places it on himself god the father placing your sin your shame your guilt on him there's full commitment to complete salvation from sin not one sin will be unaccounted for in the death of christ And can you believe this? You will be presented before God as one who has never sinned once. That's unfathomable. And in verse 12, he bore the sin of many. He bore the sin of many. This speaks clearly of particular redemption, of the choice from eternity past of those for whom Christ would die. And this is important for you to understand. God... The Father does not set his love on those for whom Christ died. He does not love you because Christ died for you. Christ died for you because God loves you. The love came first. Ephesians 4 says, In love, Ephesians 1 rather, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The Father's love is not the result of the atonement. The atonement is the result of the Father's love. The commitment came before your faith. Listen, the atonement is so important. It's the foundation of the gospel. It's the, it is the, the bedrock upon which the walls of justification and sanctification and glorification are built. And so I, I want to speak to you this morning in two ways. I want to speak to you first who have already been redeemed. Those who have already received Christ. Those who understand the atonement. Understanding the atonement from a biblical vantage point of particular redemption that God sent Jesus to die for a specific set of people, this has major implications for you. Has major implications for how you view the sovereignty of God. Has major implications for how you live your daily life if you're still struggling with the idea that the choice of God to save you is what activated salvation, if you're struggling with the fact that you didn't meet God halfway, if you're still struggling with the idea that salvation was not your idea and you could not, would not, and did not exert your human will, if you're struggling with that, could I urge you to do something? Would you examine your own heart? And would you look as deeply within yourself as you can? Do you truly believe that your salvation was totally your idea? Do you truly believe that salvation was of your own total 100% free will, that God did nothing to draw you and that you're just smarter than your unsaved neighbor? I don't think you do. I don't think there's a single real Christian who would examine their heart who actually believes that. A 19th century Scottish theologian and pastor, William Cunningham, he wrote this, and I can't do it in the Scottish accent, although that would be much more fun. He said this, so picture a Scottish accent. There is not a converted and believing man on earth in whose conscience there does not exist at least the germ or embryo of a testimony in favor of the doctrine of Election. This testimony may be misunderstood or perverted or suppressed but it exists in the sense which every converted man has that if God had not chosen him he would never have chosen God and that if God by his spirit had not exerted a decisive and determining influence in the matter he never would have turned from darkness to light and been led to embrace Christ as his savior. I don't think a true Christian actually believes it was 100% his choice. What about daily life? If you say, I believe God is sovereign, but mankind must choose salvation by his own power, then you've already undermined God's sovereignty and you've made some exceptions for his sovereignty, right? And so if God isn't sovereign over salvation, is he sovereign over the trials and tragedies of life? Maybe, maybe not. Charles Spurgeon preached this, in fact, it was so shocking in his time that the editor of his sermons took this line out and Spurgeon found out about it, got him in trouble, and put it back in. He said, quote, I can never understand what an Arminian does when he gets sick, when he falls into affliction and sorrow, meaning that if you don't have a total belief in the sovereignty of God, including sovereignty over salvation, How can you really know that he's sovereign over sickness, death, anything else tragic in life? Because now God isn't fully in control. And so if you're a believer in Christ and you're still wrestling with the sovereignty of God, just stop. Stop wrestling with it and receive it as the most glorious truth. Embrace and love and cherish the sovereign choice of God. If you think there's a question, well, would I have chosen God without his sovereignty? The answer is easy. No. You wouldn't have. Nobody would have. Romans 3 says that. But I also want to address those yet to be redeemed, yet to receive Christ as Savior. As much as we emphasize that salvation is the work of God, there is a human responsibility decreed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he said, You must believe the gospel. That is, of course, made possible by the Holy Spirit alone. What you have heard this morning is what theologians call the general call to salvation. It's a verbal proclamation which all men can hear and at some level understand. But there is a specific call of God. There is a special call. The sense in the deepest part of your spirit that you must and you shall and you need to come to Christ. Specifically, I want to talk to you youngsters, you young people who still live in your family's home. You've heard the gospel of Christ every week since your parents have been bringing you the Grace Bible Church. You've heard it. You've been taught about grace. You've been taught about mercy. You've been taught about the cross. You've heard what I just called the general call to all people. But God is issuing a specific call. The Holy Spirit may be working on you such that you, you know in your heart that you are long past the age when God simply sees you as a baby or a toddler who's incapable of rebellion against God, you know your own sin. You know your own heart. You know how you've rebelled against your parents. You know all the sins that you're guilty of. You know this. But young people, I'm not going to tell you you can do it because you can't. You can't do it. I'm not trying to Make you see, I can come to Christ. I'm trying to tell you, you can't come to Christ unless he draws you. I'm not trying to arouse natural ability in you. I'm trying to kill it. Because you're lost, you're ruined, and you're without Christ. And nothing you can do is equal to the task of salvation. I'm not going to call you up here to kneel at the front because that's useless. I'm not going to say that you should bow your head and say a certain prayer because that's useless. There's nothing you can do to come to the Lord the gospel of Christ seeks to tear you apart to shred you anyone who is not in Christ to take away all sense of inability it is to paralyze you it is to make you immobile it is to make you unable to speak unable to talk unable to move unable to see unable to hear that you're completely without recourse of any kind to be helpless and then you're paralyzed until God moves you Somebody asked me once, how do I know when I'm close to grace? Very simply, when you believe you can do nothing. When you believe you can do nothing, when you believe that you cannot believe without the move of God, now you're close to grace. We didn't ask God to elect us. We didn't ask God to provide redemption. We didn't ask God for grace, for mercy. Those were all decisions made before any of us were born. When you receive Christ, this is made possible by a decree that was already in place before Genesis 1 happened. And in that moment, when you know you can do nothing, in that moment, when you can't move, when you can't breathe, you can't even call out to God for help, you have no spiritual oxygen with with which to take a breath and call out the name of Jesus, that's the moment that Christ has placed you in to empower you now to breathe the air of salvation and to take in that breath of the Holy Spirit and your first word to be, Jesus, save me! Because you have enlivened me and you have made me able to move. And here's the paradox. You have to be paralyzed to move. You have to be mute to call out. You have to be dead to be alive and you have to be hopeless to have hope. That's worth celebrating. That's worth celebrating. In a minute, we're going to do something really minuscule and minor and talk about money. But we wanted to talk about Christ first. Our thoughts turn first and foremost to Christ. You have no idea the intensity of the wrath of God. It's so intense that on all those who have the wrath of God poured on them, it will never be extinguished for all eternity. And when 10 billion years have passed, God's wrath will not have yet begun to be extinguished. And Christ stood in your way. The arrows of God's judgment were coming right for you and Christ jumped in and took it for you and turned around and introduced you to his Father. And so we thank the Lord first and foremost for atonement, the means by which we've been reconciled to God and we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's worth celebrating. Amen. Our Father, we bless you and we thank you. We praise you, Lord, for the atonement of Christ. We are stunned by how badly he had to suffer, how much pain he had to endure. Not only did he endure Emotional humiliation, psychological torture, physical torture and death. But perhaps worst of all, he endured the pouring out of the wrath of God upon him. When he stood face to face before God, not as his father, but as a judge. And you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And so we give you thanks for the atonement. We give you thanks for the cross. And Lord, we beg you, and we ask you among those among us who are dead in their sin, who are paralyzed, who are mute, who are deaf and blind to spiritual things, would you enliven them with the breath of God so that they might cry out, Jesus, save me. They might cry out, have mercy on me, O God. And might this be the day in which they have that time of reconciling their relationship with you and be made right before you because of Christ. And for all who are in Christ here, Lord, give us a greater and grander vision of the sovereignty of God that we might trust you for each and every daily difficulty and trial, knowing that if you from eternity past could handle the salvation of our dead souls, you certainly can handle everything else. And we trust you, and we trust your sovereign will, and we thank you and praise you in the name of Christ. Amen.